You're listening to Adopted Feels, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. In recent months, the Black Lives Matter movement and anti-Asian COVID-19 pandemic racism have prompted renewed urgent conversations regarding race among Korean and other Asian adoptees. In this conversation with Adam Goodman of Plan A Magazine and the Escape from Plan A podcast, we talk about racial and adoptee identity and finding your voice as an Asian person. This is neither a guide nor a resource. There are numerous excellent texts out there, which we will link to on our socials, but rather an intimate conversation among Korean adoptees that touches on internalized racism, whiteness, responsibility, and how learning is both a shared and ongoing process. Yeah, so uh, my name is Adam Goodman. Um, I'm a Korean-American adoptee. I've been you know, involved in this sort of, I guess, adoptee community, you could call it, um, off and on since, uh, you know, early college years. Um, but in the last, I would say, five or six years, I've, I've made a concerted effort to be more involved. Uh, and right around 2016, when Trump got elected, uh, some friends of mine and I started an Asian American interest, like online magazine called Plan A Magazine. And uh, it has a companion podcast, uh, Escape from Plan A. And, um, you know, I, I tried to bring an, an adoptee uh, perspective to sort of Asian American issues and the topics that we talk about. You know, they've been very supportive and encouraging of me. And, um, you know, and, and I've gotten more involved with the adoptee citizenship issues, right? Where, you know, at least in America, not every international adoptee is a, is a, a U.S. citizen. Uh, and I know that that's, it might be a specific issue to America, but um, that's something that I've gotten more involved with. And then more recently, I've become more involved with um, and a volunteer for an organization called the Guide Foundation, which focuses on uh, adopting mental health, specifically um, suicide prevention. I guess that's a little bit about myself. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot more, I guess, but. Uh, yeah, thank you. I just had a question, Adam. Sure. I was just curious um, because I think a lot of other Asian adoptees, like sometimes you hear things um, about like feeling like kind of like an imposter within um, mm-hmm. like other Asian communities Sure. as an adoptee. And I, I was wondering like when you, when you first started um doing that work with with plan a and and bringing an adoptee perspective were you like a little unsure of yourself then or i mean has it been a a process of Mm. i don't know like more confidently owning an asian american identity for you Uh, that yeah i I would say that's a good way of describing it i I mean i i think you know i i came into it i was a little bit older you know so i wasn't like you know, a teenager or early twenties, you know, I was in my mid thirties already. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always a journey. It's always a process of, um, becoming more comfortable saying I'm Asian, um, owning the fact that, you know, I am a person of color, even though, um, you know, we're, I think most of us, and I think all of us on, on this podcast were raised by, you know, white families and white, um, neighborhoods or, or sort of environments. So culturally, we might feel sort of white, right? But, you know, I've only ever gotten like sort of support and, uh, you know, affirmation of my Asian Americanness or Asianness from my, um, 
you know, my Asian friends uh, and acquaintances. And, um, con- you know, the, the experiences as adoptees versus like an Asian American or Asian Australian are different, but there are also a lot of similarities where, you know, I can tell them, you know, this, I felt like this because, you know, I was an adoptee and, you know, not around other Asians and they could feel the same way, even though they had, you know, Asian parents. So like there was still ways for us to relate to one another. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe I'm lucky or, uh, or, or whatnot, but I, I never felt pushed out or, or had had to prove that I was, you know, Asian. Did you kind of have a strong identification as Asian American from a younger age or? Um, not when I was growing up, no. Up until college, I, I kind of like, <laughs> it's a little cringy now thinking back on it, but uh, when I was sort of applying for college and you write your essays and things and you try to like differentiate yourself, you know, I think I wrote something about how I just felt like American or something. I didn't feel, I don't know, some, some weird colorblind <laughs> essay. Um, so I didn't, I, I don't, I, like I always knew I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like white American. Um, so I always knew I was Asian, but I don't think I really like identified as Asian American. You know, I, I guess, I, you know, I think I just wanted to fit in and, you know, be liked and all these things. Uh, I wasn't really political about it. Um, but as I got older, I, I became a lot more political about my race and just sort of identifying with it. Um, so not early on, no. I was not like, I'm Asian and I'm going to like own it. We invited you here today to talk about, <laughs> a talk about race. Um, yeah. And I mean, Ryan and I are pretty nervous about this conversation because, you know, I realized that we haven't really talked about race at length on our podcast yet. Um, we kind of touched on it really early on, hmm. but it's obviously something that we've all been, I think, really confronted with. You know, I think for me, for the for the first time in my life, um, recent events like COVID and anti-Asian um, racism and the Black Lives Matter movement have made me like reflect in a big way on, um, on my identity and experiences of racism and internalized racism and hmm. yeah. Um, so maybe we can like start this conversation, yeah, by uh, like talking about how we've been affected, perhaps, and um, yeah, how we're all like generally how we've been feeling in the last couple of months. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's been a difficult period, uh, you know, for a lot of different reasons, but certainly about race, like, like you mentioned, Anna, and. Um, yeah, it, it it has prompted me to do a lot of internal sort of thought and thinking and exploration. And, you know, it's also caused me to have, I think, some more pointed and maybe uncomfortable conversations with family. Uh, uh, you know, you know uh, I was raised by, <clears throat> you know, white, white people, white, white Americans. But I guess just keeping it about you know, myself and not necessarily just, you know, we, I think we will later on talk about um, our families. I think what it's actually done in a positive sense is it's, it's, it's caused me to reach out to 
my friends who are not Asian, um, who, you know, my, my black friends, um, to really sort of talk to them and really pay attention to what is going on in their world uh, with them and how they are experiencing everything that's going on. You know, so like the Black Lives Movement sort of coming back into the fore, um, all of the activity on the street with the protests. And with my activities with the magazine, it's forced me to sort of try to push past these ideas of like allyship and, and to really think about how, how does, um, how does Asian America fit into this moment in history? Uh, and, 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 and what can I learn from the past maybe? And, and there's a lot of reading that I've had to do, you know, a lot of learning I've had to do, uh, and sort of deconstruct my understanding of what it means to support sort of a justice movement behind, you know, racial justice movements, you know, and, and trying and trying to like get past my feelings of discomfort to maybe be like, uh, you know, I'm, I is, am I white adjacent? How white adjacent am I? You know, all these, I, I think these like questions that um, not only do uh, Asian adoptees who are raised by white families have to deal with, but I think Asian America as a whole I'm learning um, is dealing with. And I think that as, as this time has gone on, I, I've become just more and more progressive, more and more, you know, left leaning um, and sort of, uh, you know, really started to think that we need to push for more and more, not just reform of what's of our systems, right? Both, you know, uh, and, and I'll just speak for myself being an American. I, I you know, I, I cannot speak for Australia, <laughs> um, but just, you know, pushing for more than just like incremental reforms, but, you know, really sort of revolutionary change in what's going on. And that that's not just a white black battle in America. This is a everyone in America battle. And, and we really, you know, and we've got to decide whether, you know, as Asian Americans, what we're going to do. Uh, and I'm not going to tell anyone what they need to do. But I know for me, uh, that means recognizing that we're fighting against white supremacist systems. And that sort of dictates <laughs> the side that you're really going to fall on. But I know it's a lot, <laughs> but that's sort of how I'm sort of thinking about it. Something I've noticed is that, um, like, I've also been, yeah, trying to do a lot of um, reading and listening and educating myself. And I think many of the anti-racism resources that I've seen are, um, are more catered towards white people or um, mm-hmm. or to Asian Americans. Um, and I think like as, as adoptees, our experiences, uh, generally speaking, like sometimes somewhere in between. And yep. I guess I wanted to ask both of you, um, how do you think that our adoptee experience perhaps changes uh I mean, yeah, changes like uh, this anti, this personal um, anti-racist work, like for us. Well, I guess um, I think what the last couple of months have brought up for me is the specificity of Black Lives Matter movement in Australia and what that looks like, and it's forced me, I guess, in in a really good and useful and difficult way to think about what it means not only to be Asian on uh, stolen land, but also what it means to be an adoptee 
on stolen mm-hmm. land because mm-hmm. I think for a lot of for a lot of my life in Australia, and I, I moved here in uh, 2004, so I actually grew up in in Asia. I think the fact that I moved here as an adult, I didn't go through you know the Australian educational system up until un- until university. Um, mm. I didn't really have a strong sense of what it meant to be Australian, and I don't. I was never taught Australian history, so that's something that you know has to be very much a, a self study. But you know, thinking about the fact that yeah, I didn't grow up in this country, I didn't choose to live in this country. I know you know no one chooses the country that they were so-called born into, but I guess for adoptees, it's quite specific. Right? Sure. Cause we were, you know, <laughs> uh, it brings a whole other yeah. layer. Um, but I think making, making the question of what it means to be a person of color living on indigenous land, how I make sense of that, what my responsibilities are, how I align myself with broader, you know, social justice movements. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like practically like, um, I think all of that has, that, that's what's sort of rising in me, I suppose. During this time where we have, you know, anti-Asian pand- pandemic racism, so that's more in, you know, mainstream consciousness mm-hmm. as well as the Black Lives Matter movement in Australia specifically. So the, these have both kind of come to the fore roughly around the same time, which I think is a really good opportunity for these um, alliances and rethinkings, but also in a really like existential sense, you know, it's like, what, like, what does it mean to be a settler, you know? And what does Mm. it mean to be an Asian settler? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know, um, if that kind of differs from a little bit, perhaps from the conversations in the States. It's interesting that you bring up the whole uh, sort of, sort of colonial level with settler, Something we, we talk a lot about amongst, you know, my friends and I at, at Plan A is just this notion that I think a lot of Asian Americans sort of bring, take on this sort of the, the white guilt of their colleagues and maybe friends um, and who they sort of aspire to be. Because, you know, I think one of the more ugly realizations that or things that a lot of Asian Americans need to admit sometimes is that they do wish for like the... Um, prosperity of like the white, you know, their white neighbors is that they, I think a lot of Asian Americans will take on sort of that white guilt themselves that by proxy, but, and and maybe this is different in Australia. um, And maybe there was direct sort of settler actions that were taken by some Asian Australians, but at least from my knowledge of what happened in America, that didn't really happen. Right. It's not like there were Chinese immigrants that came and settled in the same way that like English and German and French and, you know, other sort of uh, white American people might've done. So I, I find that idea of like, f- like feeling that settler guilt, maybe not to be maybe quite the same or, or something that I think Asian Americans need to sort of put on themselves. Uh, there's a much longer history of Asian Americans in America being, you know, discriminated against and oppressed and, you know, and, and as I, as, as I learn more of my history, like as adoptees, even in America, um, there are some of these like Asian American incidents that are seen as like the, the uh, cornerstones of the social, uh, of the justice fight, right? The racial justice and, and uh, a fight. And one of those cases is Vincent Chin. And it's a very famous case and everyone sort of is aware of his name. But what I just learned 
recently is that he was an adoptee. What? He, and and I'm and, and yeah, and I'm like, what? And I looked it up, and yeah, he was he was born in China, and uh, and he was adopted. That sort of just blew my mind, and I'm like, that that even inserts me even more into this fight because not only am I sort of st- am I part of it because of my Asian Americanness or my the fact that I'm an Asian living in America, but this is an adoptee, and I'm an adoptee too. And as I've you know I, as I've become I guess a little bit more public and just you know on podcasts and things like that. Uh, and 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 gotten more involved, sort of, with everything. You know, you 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 hear about some of these incidents that happen, you know, with black people, and like the, I guess you know, it's so funny that the uh, and that's not funny, but the um, news cycle is so quick. And about just a few weeks ago, everyone was talking about how there are like five or six hangings, lynchings of black people in America, and everyone's like, oh, they're just suicides. But one of those cases I just learned, it, it was it, he was. The, the, the black man who was hung in like, I think Morris Cha- Morristown, New Jersey, he was an adoptee. He was adopted from an African country. I forget exactly where, but I'm like this, mm. we're not separate from this. Like we're like, mm. uh, we're all in this. Like, this is just, we can't, and I guess I'm rambling, but like, I, we cannot just be like, you know, we're culturally white and that therefore like we need to just perform all of this white fragility and white guilt and all this stuff. We're not white. Yeah. Uh, and you know we're in this as people of color, uh, and you know black people, people of color. You know we're not black; we're people of color. It, it's very uncomfortable, I think, for us, for some of us, to admit that. Um, it's certainly not comfortable for something, you know, for me to have to admit that. Like a friend of mine was just saying, like sometimes it can be very tiring. Like I just wish I wasn't, but we can't. We can't get away from it, right? Like we step outside, and this is how the world sees us, right? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know whether I need to th- think about it as like a settler, but I think a, one of those parts of it could be like a, 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 maybe a class part, you know, maybe we're, 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 we're gentrifiers, you know, in, in America, but, um, that's slightly different than being <laughs> a colonial settler, I would say. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, what I, what I wanted to say is I guess the particular, aspect of it that I'm grappling with is not being a colonizer in the sense that, you know, you just, you just talked about, because obviously there is obviously also here a long history of anti-Asian oppression, anti-Asian discrimination and suffering, even before the white Australia policy. Um, So there's a long history of that, but I guess in a really fundamental sense, you know, I benefit from the, uh, dispossession of land and resources um, and not to mention the founding violence of the Australian nation, you know? So as long as I live here, I I live in a rental property. I, I try and carve a career here on this land. You know, it, it is still founded on that and, and where to locate my responsibility in that um, and uh, my commitment, you know, to, to racial justice in this country, yeah. um, I think that responsibility for you know colonizing aside, you know, it's the sort of historical um, and and ways in which I benefit from that structural injustice that is still ongoing. And I, sure. I also wonder, yeah. Hannah, I don't know what you think, but like I feel like those sorts of conversations. And Hannah, you you grew up in Tasmania, so um, I'd love to hear what what you have what your experiences were, but. Um, 
I feel like that's much more the way that blackness has been talked about in this country. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so in Tasmania, basically um, all Indigenous communities were massacred by white Australians. Um, Mm. But also um, it's something that, like, growing up, I wasn't really faced with or um, honestly didn't think about much um, because I I had, like, no contact with um, at all with black Indigenous Australians. I I didn't even know where those uh, descendants lived or um, I I just – it's just, uh, like, embarrassingly something that I didn't think about at all and and my – family never talked about occasionally my white relatives would complain about um aboriginal people getting certain benefits and and handouts as they said um and yeah but but otherwise it's just i I just had this really comfortable i think complete distance from the australian indigenous experience and and honestly, in Australia, I feel like I feel slightly uncomfortable that that I feel like these national conversations. I mean, I mean, it's it's really important that they've um, they're getting attention now, but I it's it has been yeah largely um, a response to to the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. rather than something that we were uh, that we were really like looking at ourselves Mm -hmm. as Australians. I mean, I remember just a few years ago in Australia, like there was this whole thing with um, black Indigenous Australian football players um, being called like really racist names by by white Australian radio hosts. And that was just a couple of years ago and and we were saying like, oh, it's not a big deal. It was just a slip of the tongue. Um, I mean, p- part of me as as an Australian person of color is just kind of like, wow, the 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 conversation has um, turned so so quickly um, that I, I have mixed feelings about that. It's like I almost have, um, I, honestly, I think there's some resentment in me as as an Australian person of color that that just like I don't know, like why why do Australians suddenly care about this now? I I just I mm-hmm. feel like growing up in it's Australia, a cynicism. it was a really racist country. a little country. bit of cynicism, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I know that the, we're probably all, we've all dealt with this bit as well on social media. Like my initial response to seeing a lot of like, um, a lot of uh, Black Lives Matter supportive um, posts and stuff from from some Australian friends and family and acquaintances, um, you know, whom I, I'd, I'd never heard them talk about race or um, express express support for um, anti-racist movements and it was it was like initially a little bit uh, like jarring for me or, or something yeah um, no, that, that's fair enough um, and you know you know Ryan you you bring up a lot of those are ver- some very tough questions about how do we sit with the fact like you pointed out that even if we weren't you know, the, set, the original settlers, right, that we do benefit from the systems that were set up by the legacy of that, even if 
there has been a history of discrimination and oppression against us in the current day, it's not as obvious, right? And, and we seem to benefit. And we're the, I guess, as JS, as Jessica Lee wrote, uh, we're like the super minority, right? We're the chosen minority to be, you know, sort of treated well. And, and I don't really have an, <laughs> you know, only Anand really has an answer to that. Um, uh, mm. and, and certainly I'm not going to tell anyone to like quit their job and, and, and sort of, you know, not take care of themselves and their families. Um, but I think it comes down to thinking about what do you support when it comes to change? Like when you see something like uh, there's a, been a movement in the United States uh, about defunding the police uh, and demilitar- demilitarizing the police. And um, I think you have to then think to yourself, how do I react to that idea? Um, is it immediately dismissive or is it uh, thinking, well, why are people asking for that? Why are black people asking for that? Just sort of inter- interrogating within yourself why you're reacting one way or the other to it. And then thinking, well, you know, am I reacting that way because I'm trying to keep my place in the current system? You know, and, and, and I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, I'm just saying that you got to think about why. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it could be very natural, of course. You know, I, I'm pretty comfortable. Uh, and, and I could just be very easily say, yeah, you know, we need to fund the police and the police are fine. But then, you know, I think about what's happening. There are, are Asian people that get killed by the police, too. You know, Tommy Lay got, got killed. He was shot. Uh, and um, you know, I brought up Vincent Chin. He was murdered and no one did anything. You know, that there's, there's been increased anti-Asian racism for about COVID and, and all this stuff. That, that's sort of where I fall on it. I know it seems it can seem like a dodge, be like, well, then you're not really addressing. But I also think about how, you know, I've been learning more and more about, and this is, this is probably a much more American thing, but talking about reparations for, for American descendants of slavery. And I'm very much in favor of that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I could very easily say I'm not, because then I might, I might have to pay. And I'm like, well, I didn't do it. But as a whole and as a society, we all benefited from that. So it's, we need to pay for it. We need to say, you know, we did this wrong as a country and all of us even today are benefiting from it and we need to make it right. So that's Mm -hmm. how I try to frame it in my mind of, you know, I'm benefiting from this system. What can I do? Because I'm not going to tell anyone just quit your job and like, you know, or I'm not going to tell people, I'm not going to tell Asian Americans that they need to renounce their privilege, like these white liberal, sorry, idiots that do that on the street. Like, what is that going to do? You don't have that white privilege to renounce. So, and, and, and even if you did, what does that do? It doesn't do anything. That's how I come at it of how am I going to deal with the fact that I am benefiting from society that was based off of chattel slavery. I just wanted to say, um, in relation to Jessica Lee's article, uh, yeah, I lot think, to think um, about. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing article, and it's quite it's quite confrontational. I think yes, for a lot of Asian adoptees, and I was wondering, maybe I'm kind of slightly misinterpreting the idea of white guilt, but um, okay, something that has come up for me as as an adoptee uh, from a white Australian family is that, I mean, I think that I have this sense of guilt that 
like as a child and and perhaps a teenager, I I think I literally wanted to be white. You know, I mm-hmm. I really I really had this um it's very much aspiring to to whiteness and yeah. and assimilation and you know, actively avoided other um Asian kids at school. I mean, I also didn't mm-hmm. relate to their experience, but I, I really actively avoided other Asians. I didn't uh, want to be mistaken for any other, like for the other, you know, with the other Asian woman in the room. Um, I I didn't want to date Asians for a really long time. So I feel like I, I have this sense of guilt still now that I, I know that I'm still unlearning a lot of that. Like still, it's it's really it's really mm-hmm. a, a process, yeah. and um, that's what I think about when. For me, that's like my my sense of like white guilt. Just just um, the level to which I think I was really steeped in whiteness. I mean, even if it it wasn't technically like my fault, obviously as a child being adopted, sure. but I just um, I guess is that different to what's referred to in the article as like play acting white guilt as adoptees. Uh, yeah. I, um, I think it's slightly different, um, for, uh, uh, for we adoptees and our, and what you describe Hannah, uh, as white guilt versus, um, the play acting of white guilt that I think I mentioned before and what other Asian Americans who had Asian American parents and, um, uh, you know, relatives and, and, and communities uh, will play act. We have a much more, I think, in, you know, in various obvious ways, uh, we as Asian people who are raised by white people have a much, we're much closer to whiteness than I think um, any other person can be other than other people in a similar situation. Right. Yeah. Uh, Cause not only are we living in a white society, which brings everyone close to whiteness in a way anyway, but we're raised by white people in a, in a sort of, I guess delusion is a strong word, but in a facsimile of we're just white people, right? Like we're white children. So I, you know, I, I want to, I want to say like, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. (laughs) I felt that way too. I mean, I think every adoptee I've ever met has said that at least at some point they felt that way. I don't know, Ryan, if you ever felt that way, but I feel very, fairly confident that at some point in your life you felt that way right well, well i was you know yeah i think my 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 uh upbringing is perhaps somewhat atypical as far as korean oh, that's right be, yeah because i um spent most of my childhood in taiwan and then a while in in korea but something that that's right that's right you know you you were saying earlier actually made me realize that i think what i internalized was colorblindness you know, because, and it, and it's only later in life that I recognize colorblindness to be in some cases a proxy for whiteness as the norm, right. As the invisible norm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, even though I grew up in a multiracial family and I think that probably did make my experience slightly different, you know, I, I, most of my peers growing up were Asian there was still very much whiteness as a norm. You know, our, our teachers were were predominantly white. There was a lot of sort of white Americanism that was really sort of pitched as the ideal, even if it was unspoken. Right. So it's been interesting to to, to think about 
that. So just despite growing up in a different context, the sort of strength of whiteness yeah. <laughs> as a kind of pillar around which well, it, everything revolves, yeah. you know, like is, is really interesting to reflect on now. You know, that guilt that you feel, Hannah, I feel is not really the same. Uh, you know, it, it might, I don't know if I want to describe it as a white guilt, but I think it's like an adoptee guilt in a way. Yes. I don't know. Um, because yeah, like, cause I think you're, you know, you're stepping into sort of your, you know, you're, you're figuring out more of who you are. And I think then, it, and you're coming to the conclusion that you're thinking, you, you know, you're, you're more Asian, you know, than you thought you were maybe. And now you're thinking, oh man, how, this is how I remember feeling and thinking. And then it for, sort of embarrasses you maybe. And I know it embarrasses me to think about <laughs> how I thought, you know, even five or six or seven years ago. Yeah. It's just, uh, hopefully, you know, it, it gets easier for you. Uh, and you don't quite feel so guilty because, you know, you were just a kid. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. I think it's really important, I guess, for us to reflect on not, not as, you know, a- apologizing perhaps, um, ignorance when we're older. No. Um, but, you know, recognizing like the multiple challenges, right. And yeah. barriers that were involved and potentially are still involved in understanding ourselves as, or even, you know, like I think Hannah, you brought this, you brought this up in the past, but like even claiming, claiming the right to call yourself a Korean or to call myself an Asian Australian or hmm. um, without having been schooled in a formal or informal sense, right. In, in what that means or in, for, in my case, like Korean culture, even though I lived in Korea for a while, actually, you know, the, the sort of sense of, well, I'm, I'm really inauthentic. Like I, I feel like uh, a, a constant child because I, I don't know how to, how to read this. I don't mm. know how to connect to Koreans. I don't know. Um, you know, so, so how do I get to the point where I can, can sort of celebrate that aspect of myself, even though I'm like a, uh, a late learner and that, and that's not for, for anything that I've done, but just the fact that, yeah, when, when you're an adoptee and you're young, you don't, yeah. there's a very real barriers to, to self-exploration and to coming to terms with, Absolutely. with that stuff. Yeah. And I struggle with that guilt too. Sort of like, you know, I, I, if I really cared, I would learn Korean. Right. And like the fact <laughs> that like, if I didn't, I haven't learned it, that doesn't mean I don't care. I, I, I think, for me, I try to use my guilt or those feelings of guilt as a catalyst for action and a catalyst for change. Because if I just sort of wallow in the guilt and feel sorry for myself, then guilt can be a very, I would say uh, it's a fairly useless emotion to have if all I do is sort of sit in it. Uh, And I've I've tried to learn to be kinder to myself (laughs) and be like, okay, I didn't do it. There's always a chance to learn, you know, and, and do more. Uh, and, you know, my, my, my wife will, will uh, joking. I think, I don't know if she's like joking more on herself or, or me, but she'll be like, we've been, we've known each other for however many years and I've only taught you three words. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we joke about it. But, you know, I, then I sort of like in the moment get a little sort of sad or guilty. I'm like, oh man, I should have tried harder. 
Um, but you know, it'll happen if I want it to happen. And, and, and I, I shouldn't beat myself too much. I shouldn't beat myself up too much if it doesn't. Yeah. It's uh it's always, it's a process. Everything is a process. I actually, I also try to really take off any of that pressure to be, I don't know, a good Korean, whatever that means. I, especially, you know, even living in Korea. Um, yeah, sure. You know, I, I can barely cook Korean food. Um, my Korean is like intermediate at best. And, you know, honestly, it's like the reasons (laughs) why I I'm truly motivated to learn Korean. It will will be little things like, Like, even though I'm reunited with my Korean family, this is terrible. It's like, oh, yes, I, I want to have, I, I do want to have um, deeper, more meaningful conversations with my relatives. But I, it's, it will be moments like I'll be in an elevator with a Korean woman wearing like a great pantsuit. And I'll want to be like, hey, I really <laughs> like your outfit. Like, where did you get that? I've never seen anything like that. You know, that's and, good enough. But I mean, like, you know, the rest of the other 90% of my daily life, I get by with the Korean (laughs) I have. And, um, yeah, I also try not to beat myself up about that. I mean. That's such a great story. I love it. (laughs) I mean, people assume that it's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, learning Korean is probably really important to you, right? Because I don't know. People just, yeah, assume certain things. um, and. Yeah, but most of the time I'm actually okay with my with my level of like baby Korean. Um, <laughs> most of the time you're just like, God damn it, what's the word for a fucking pantsuit, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's probably like pantsuit. Probably. I don't yeah. imagine there like there's like a traditional Korean word for pantsuit, but yeah. <laughs> So instead, um, I just kind of like probably like stare awkwardly at and she's and then she's like, the "Why face. is this woman staring at me?" Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it must be my <laughs> amazing pantsuit. <laughs> so you know that actually brings up a question because I know that like we wanted to talk about. Um, I guess to bring it back <laughs> to the topic at yeah. hand, but uh, we wanted to talk about like, so sort of how uh, we can, uh, whether we've been able to talk about sort of the present moment um, with racial justice and just justice in general with our family. And I guess, you know, you bringing up your um, biological family, Hana, makes me wonder uh, about both sides of that. So obviously we have our own adoptive families, but um and I don't mean to take over the, the podcast host role here, but my, no, I'm wondering, <laughs> but I'm wondering, I'm wondering, like, have you ever, have you been talking about sort of what's going on in America uh, with your, your Korean family or in, or in Australia or, you know, what's going on? Yeah. Um, so I've also had a handful of uncomfortable, but important, I think conversations with my, my white Australian family Mm. with my Korean family, you know, honestly, I, I feel like Koreans are aware of, of black lives matter, but it's, um, 
that conversation is really not prominent here. I, you know, I, I also think I was reflecting that being here, uh, you know, in this very racially homogenous country and, you know, being part of the ethnic majority and feeling honestly really safe and comfortable in my body mm. all the time, I feel like I have this other sense of guilt that I've kind of like, I don't have to face, I don't have to face those little uh, racial microaggressions and, and forms of profiling and things that I just kind of bec had become used to in Australia that, hmm. that I'm not, yeah, I'm just not dealing with, um, not dealing with like race on, on the same, in the same everyday way anymore. I, I feel like I've almost like just kind of like run away and escaped from it all, like living in Korea right now, to mm. be honest. Mm. Um, and it's obviously something that I still really care about and that, yeah, that I f um, follow and try to educate myself about. But, you know, say I work at a Korean company and um, I work within a team of, like we have a, a foreigner team, as they would say in, in Korea. So mm. we're just uh, kyopos and adoptees in our team. Um, but yeah, at work, it's it's never really come up, and I mean, it just it doesn't feel like an important issue in Korea. To be to be honest, I mean, there's there's right. been some right. um, yeah within the foreigner uh, community here. There's fair. yeah, but. Yeah. But how have the conversations with your parents gone? Your your uh, white adoptive parents? Yeah. Parents? Well, what happened is um so I had this experience where well, a lot of my relatives come from small town Tasmania, which is pretty white. And um so recently one of them posted something on Facebook like it was like mm. all lives matter or like police lives mm -hmm. matter or, and like, Oh, the world's gone crazy. Like, you know, this is, this mm. is also ridiculous. It was something like that. And, um, and usually when I see that kind of stuff from my relatives, I, it would upset me and, and I would just kind of ignore it. But, uh, this time I, f I felt mm. kind of compelled to, and I mean, I know that this is all so much easier, like through a computer screen and, you know, I. Sure. Yeah. But uh, I, I felt compelled to at least comment on this post. And I was kind of terrified because I'd never interacted with any of my um, Australian relatives in this way. And before I did it, I brought it up with my with my parents, like, you know, over just over WhatsApp or whatever, because, you know, they're obviously in Australia and I'm here in Korea. And, and then I realized that that was one of the first conversations about racism that I'd had with my parents in a really long time. And that was wow. also really kind of terrifying because yeah. I mean, I was already feeling really emotional with, um, with generally what was going around on in the, in the world. And I was like, I do not want to argue with my parents about this. I do not want to feel completely rejected and misunderstood with them on this. Um, but actually in the end, it was a, a really nice 
it was a really good opportunity for me to say like that basically, hey, I'm a person of color too and this kind of thing affects me and I right and I you know at, at the very least I need to say like hey I, I see your post and I'm not okay with that and just basically hey I see it you can't just like post mm-hmm. whatever like racist bullshit that you want and like and think that there are like zero consequences to that you know that, that you're just not there's zero accountability um yeah anyway and my my dad was actually really supportive and he was like that's good yeah I think you should call it out and so it was just a very simple exchange but it just it made me realize that I don't talk about race with my with my family and friends like with the people with these white people who are like very close to me like we do not Mm. talk about this thing that is so that is is so essential to who I am yeah um, which is, which is kind of crazy. And, and, and it was so nerve wracking because yeah, I'm just, we're not practiced at all, or I'm not at least in having those conversations with them. Sorry, that was a big story. But yeah. <laughs> that's- no, no, that's great. Can I just say Hannah about what you were, you were saying before, um, about being in Korea and feeling guilty. I just want to say that it's really sad that you feel guilty about having some level of comfort in like your embodiment and in your environment. And I think, you know, I just wanted yeah. to, to point that out. Cause I think that was like quite a, yeah, I just, I just wanted to point that out because I, I, I think that's really f- fucked up that you, that not just you personally, but like that one should feel guilty and undeserving of feeling comfortable, like, yeah. you know, in your skin, yeah. like that's, that points to some larger issues well, that aren't that aren't your fault, you know. <laughs> right, it's not on you. No, I'm, and I mean, I think actually, so this is kind of related, I think, to learning to really love and, and accept yourself as an Asian person, and to really yeah. celebrate yeah, your yeah. Asianness. It's like living in Korea for me has has probably been um, like the the single most helpful thing in that uh process um and that's why like generally I I really like living here and I think it's very healing for me in ways that I can't fully articulate so it's just that um I guess I realize that at the moment I feel like I'm living in this little Korean bubble Mm. where yeah where most Koreans I don't think are, are really thinking about um this global racial justice issue. Mm. Adam, did you also say that mm-hmm. that you've had some uh, some uncomfortable convers- uncomfortable but important conversations lately with friends yeah. and family? Yeah, I think more with 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 family. So um, there wasn't, a, you know, there's no there was no overt racism in my family or anything like that. Uh, we, you know, I was raised in a very liberal sort of, you know, family in that sense, but I don't say that to say that like liberals can't be racist, but, um, in their own way, cause it's not the same way as like conservatives are racist. But, um, I think what I've been, the conversations I've been having that have become, that have become more difficult is 
sort of pointing out to to my mom because my my dad passed away uh, you know about five six years ago, but pointing out to my mom that uh, sort of these problems that her that are, that are sort of coming to the fore right now in, in very obvious ways that people cannot ignore anymore uh, have been here for a long time. And liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, uh, they have continued to be a reality in America. And that as someone who... And this is something that, you know, I had to go through in my own sort of thinking because I always thought of myself as a liberal and that made me non-racist and all these things. I had to sort of deconstruct and, and sort of think to myself, like, that's not really true. Like, I, if I really analyze what is said, what was done, you know, policies and, and just everything that's going on in America, racism has continued in one form or another and the systems have perpetuated and been built up since the founding of America, whether it was a Democrat, Republican, you know, the definition of that flipped at some point, <laughs> you know, the Republican, Democrat, uh, conservative, liberal, all the, it's been going on. So no one on any side of the spectrum can say that like they're, they're guiltless, right? That they weren't involved somewhere, somehow. And so like, I've had these conversations, the conversations have become difficult, not because I have to deal with someone who's like openly racist, but to sort of talk about how like, yes, things are coming to a head now. And, and yes, you know, you grew up and you're old enough to have been an adult during the civil rights movement, right? Mm -hmm. But things didn't, weren't fixed. It's not like the, the civil rights act of 1964 was passed and racism went away. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and like you're saying, Hannah, uh, like, I am a person of color in America. I'm not white. And I know that you know that, you know, my family. I know that you know that. But this is how I experience life differently than you have. And, you know, and 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 and, and I give my mom a lot of credit. She listens to me and <laughs> will argue, but she does listen and and she doesn't just sort of, you know, get defensive. So I give her a lot of credit for that. But it's been tough to sort of and I, and I don't like like yelling at her or feeling like I'm sort of scolding her in a way, but like it's, be, it's been hard to just be like pointing out all of these things that are happening and telling her like, look, you thought you were like the good white person for so long, but like you have to realize that these people that you might admire, these politicians and, and, and leaders, they did some awful things. And that just because we're going to beat Trump doesn't mean that I'm going to be like happy at the end of the day. Like I'm still going to be really fighting for a lot of things to happen. And um, so it's been difficult from that perspective. Um, not because I'm fighting against, you know, not, it's not because I'm talking to someone who's, you know, openly racist. So it might be a little bit more subtle, but it's, uh, I'm just trying to get her to quite understand that like, you know, I'm fighting for change. And when you say like, you have to be realistic, people are afraid of change. It's got to go slow that I'm like, well, you do realize that I'm counting that in lives that are lost. Like I'm, it's not like a theoretical, like, you know, like a lot of upper middle class white liberals are like, you know, we're just going to have to wait, you know, the change will happen, but it's going to be slow. And then they just, their lives don't, aren't impacted by the fact that it's so slow. And I'm like, well, yeah. it impacts people I know and impacts other people. And it's not just like that their lives are a little harder. 
it means that their lives could end. So I'm not mm-hmm. quite interested in you saying that <laughs> we're just going to have to wait because change is slow. Like I can't, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> like I just, mm-hmm. so I'm fighting against that. So that's why it's been difficult, not overt racism. Mm. I think it is a form of uh, work though, like having it is, conversations yes. for sure. Um, yeah. And it's, can be really tiring and yeah. frustrating at times. Um, yeah, even when someone someone really does listen and, and they're not uh, just, you know, throwing up a lot of white right. defensiveness or, yeah. Um, I actually, I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, so recently also known as did this, uh, organize this amazing panel discussion with um, some uh, black American transracial yeah. adoptees and someone, one of the adoptees at the end of the, at the discussion just mentioned that it's also really important to just um, to take care of ourselves as well when mm. we're maybe having a lot of conversations about, about race and difficult topics with, um, with the white people around us. And then, I thought it was interesting, like a, f- a friend asked me recently, she asked, like, what do you think <laughs> our social responsibility is, like, as very white adjacent adoptees, like, to perhaps uh, educate people um, mm-hmm. versus that need to, yeah, kind of just for self-care and, self- and self-protection. I don't know if that's something you guys have ever thought about or... Yeah, it's um, no one can be on all the time, right? Uh, and sometimes you just are not in the space to sort of talk about it and to do it in a way that you feel is going to be, uh, you know, constructive. So, you know, I try to make sure that, that if I'm going to engage in the conversation, I'm not going to become too defensive myself or, uh, right, yeah. you know, uh, but... You know, I I get where the question's coming from in terms of like what's our responsibility? Because there is a responsibility, I feel. But um I don't want anyone to feel like obligated that at all times we must sort of be the racial ambassadors of our <laughs> of our families and, and sort of be the racial educators. Yeah. Uh <laughs> you know, uh because we're all still learning, so it's not like we're all sort of perfectly educated and uh, you know, aware and perfect, perfectly woke, you yes. know, spokespeople for this. Um, and we're still as adoptees, even though, you know, I will say, you know, my, my friends have said, you know, I think even my brother, cause I was, I was adopted with my brother. So he'll be like, you know, we sort of, you know, we're sort of in this special place, right. In this unique spot. So that does sort of afford a unique power, but it, it can be draining. And, you know, I, people should take the time to like, you know, it's about, I think about it from like a, a, an 80, 20 perspective, like just because 20% of the time you're not on and you're sort of taking care of yourself, um, you know, allow yourself that. And then the other, the other 80%, maybe you can, <laughs> you can be that person, but you know, mm-hmm. don't know, don't you know, be kind to yourself. I think I said that earlier and uh, speak up when you feel able to. And if you don't, then just, so to be like, I didn't at that time, what could I have said? And then the next time just be like, I promise I will whatever. And then do it then. 
you know, you can't go back in time and change it. Uh, so yeah, that's how I try yeah. to think about it. I mean, just one yes. way. And I think, you know, I think speaking up is really takes some practice. Um, oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I remember, um, Okay, so when I was a kid and I would, you know, like kids in the playground or whatever would say racist things, um, I used to go into like this fight, flight, freeze kind of response, right? Oh, yeah. And I remember like as an adult, like um, like say I might be like out at night or something and and some some drunk white guy might say like ni hao or konnichiwa or something like that. Hmm. And again, I would go like for a long time, I would have a very aggressive response. I was going to say, just knee him in the balls. That's, <laughs> that's the response he requires. I would have this like really, yeah, kind of angry fuck off response for, and, um, <laughs> and so, you know, it really took a lot of practice to, for me, for me to feel comfortable and composed enough to, uh, yeah, like to, to not go back into kind of like this this child state of kind of shock and panic hmm. and um, and really just say what I, I wanted to say. Uh, so any, anyway, I just want, I just really agree that it's it takes practice and I think that um, we should definitely be kind kind to ourselves because we we won't necessarily taught these skills um mm -hmm. from by our, our our white adoptive parents and and even when you do speak up you might not do it the way that you envision it in your mind uh and just learn from it you know yeah <laughs> yeah um just you know practice your kneeing technique and it, it'll help <laughs> um but you know i i think about it in this way so like there was a video that was going around Twitter about like this white tech CEO who harassed this family in a restaurant, this Asian family in a restaurant. And the, one of the white waitresses was just like, get the fuck out of here. Go fuck you. You're not welcome here. She didn't try to reason with him. She didn't try to be like, sir, why are you being so bad? Like she didn't like, you know, there's certain, you know, it's like, there's certain things that like, don't, require or a reasoned sort of response is not what's going to help. Like if the person's already at that point where they're calling you, you know, the C word and doing those things, then you trying to like tell them like, Oh, I, you know, I was born here. I was raised here. That is not the, that is not going to do anything. Uh, in my opinion, in my opinion, the only like real way to do something is one, one of two things. You just ignore them and go about your way and just get out of that situation, right? And protect yourself because that's the kind of person that you don't know what they're going to do. But if you have to say something, it's just basically fuck off and then walk away because there's no, what are you debating? There's no debate there. Um, but if you're in a conversation like with your family and you're talking about, let's say like, like police brutality or something and they say like, well, you know, we do need police, right? or something like that, then it's much more open to be like, well, why do you feel that way? You can have a conversation now about that. Um, but if their, but if their response, like your, your, your relative on Facebook is blue lives matter, that is not a conversation opener, right? That's mm -hmm. just sort of like, I don't support this. This is racist. And that's it. 
So like, yeah. I kind of, I try, I, I try to like, because a lot of like, I, maybe it's not happening as often, but you know, there were a lot of like, there was, there was an article in the New York times of some, you know, one of these like, uh, you know, media hot, you know, Asians who was sort of like upper middle class and like of a certain media persuasion who was like, you know, I'm, you know, and he was writing about his experience that he had. And he's like, we were coming out of church. I went to Harvard. I work at the times. Like, how could you do this to me? I'm like, that is, what does that have to do with anything? Like this woman knew that she could see that you were, it, it's sort of like, you know, with, um, uh, Christian, uh, uh, what's his name? Christian Cooper or, uh, uh, uh the guy in, in central park, uh, you yeah. know, like, like, um, like she could see that he was a fairly well-dressed black man, but she still went to call the police and say a black man is threatening me. So it doesn't yeah. have to anything to do with the fact that you're non-threatening. It's that your race, they're racist. <laughs> <laughs> you being an upper class of a race that they don't like doesn't matter. They saw that and they were still racist. Okay. So you don't need to, you know, so that, that's, that's sort of how I come from. Like, if you're going to try to respond to it, <laughs> you know, cause that knee, how that walk away or knee him in the balls. That's, I'm sorry. I just, that's, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's just a really good point that, um, that I think we can get better at assessing quickly, uh, like what kind of conversation is possible here yeah. and what kind of, yeah. And it's just like, is this, is this a person that's like that gen, genuinely wants to learn and listen, or is this a person that I don't know, is just going to get emotional or defensive or whatever, or they're just, they're just freaking racist. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. I mean, it's like a lot of these racist incidents, they're there to just, you're, you're the prop in their sort of out outburst. So you just get yourself out of there or defend yourself and that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and, and, you know, I, cause I just don't want other, I don't want to see other Asian Americans or anyone else, uh, you know, be hurt from all this, but we're seeing so much of it. Uh, and, and that upsets me, you know, and it's sort of like, uh, you know, when it comes to like the adoptee citizenship thing, it's like, we're all sort of, we're, you know, I, I'm, I have citizenship, but it accepts, it upsets me that other adoptees don't because mm -hmm. it's just, you know, I, I feel a connection to them. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, well, why do you care? It's like, well, cause it's not just, it's not right. And this is something that like, that could have been me. So from a selfish perspective, it's sort of like, I feel like it could have affected me. So I want to fix this or help at least in some way to like fix it. So. Yeah. It's, it's not right, it's not just, it's just, it's like effed up, really. Yeah. So one of our other last sort of topics on the list, um, and we've touched on it just before, the, the inside job of anti-racism. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking when you were talking, Hannah, that for me there's being adopted is really entangled with my capacity to, I think even historically like recognize forms of discrimination and then also like trust that what I was mm. feeling was valid, you know? And I think hearing you speak, like it really, you know, when you talked about your, your, the child part of you, I think I still have, and I need to learn how to challenge that like people pleasing aspect of, my personality, which I think is like 
largely wow. because of being adopted or you know or being taught to like take up you know don't don't take up too much space or you know don't point something out because when you point something out you become the problem as opposed to people recognizing that Mm -hmm. you're pointing out a problem right like um and i think that's like ongoing work like even you know to overshare like in in therapy you know when when my therapist is like you are not that child right that child may still be there somewhere in your psyche but you're an adult, like you are okay, you are safe, like you're no longer that kid. <laughs> so to be able to recognize in your like more adult interactions that like, you know what, I could like, I could speak up. It's not going to be the end of the world. I am safe. I am secure. And then learning how to like trust that more and, and to be able to, to really um, put that into practice. I think for me, not just with racism, but even with like homophobia or transphobia is still very much something I know that is mm-hmm. that inside job, right? Like as you, as you've called it, Hannah. Yeah. That people pleasing that, that, that really resonates with me. And that's a lifelong thing. I don't think that's something I'll ever sort of squash. Right. I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah. No, man. And like, I was getting a little emotional when you were talking about how it's sort of like, your, you said your therapist was like that inner child will always sort of live in you, but you know, you're, you're an adult, you're grown, you're safe. Like, mm-hmm. to, I think that you're safe. That really hits me hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really hits me. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're just even like the three of us starting podcasts and putting our voices out there. I mean, that's a huge thing. Yes. Yeah. You know? And all of identities wrapped it up in that, you know, it's speak, you know, speaking our truth and and admitting things that might be embarrassing and not just to ourselves or like among the three of us, but this will be out for anyone to hear. Forever. Uh, You know, (laughs) unless you guys don't know, but yeah, but you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a courageous act just to do that. Yeah. But that inner work is really tough because as you Ryan, as you point out, it's wrapped up in our, all the other issues, right? So it's not even just like this inside job of like, what, how have I been racist, you know, in my thinking, how have I been racist, maybe in my actions, you know, how can I be anti-racist? Like what is being anti-racist mean? What can I do to be anti-racist? Um, but then it's all wrapped up in like all of our white adjacency feelings, our, our feelings of white guilt by proxy, you know, feelings of like, if I talk to my parents and talk about my experiences growing up as a person of color and the racism I, I, I experienced, how are they going to react to that? Are they going to be defensive? Are they going to, you know, and then that comes up against feelings of like, as you said, you know, like, are we good enough? Uh, you know, are we going to be abandoned again? All of those things. Like, and the people pleasing fits into those ideas of like, you know, fears of abandonment. So we try to be people pleasers so that we're not abandoned again. Right. Um, and it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Mm. Um, and I wonder if like for some of us, and I'd, I'd have to ask my parents, but um, when those discussions do come up now that we're older, I wonder if our parents are like, wow, I didn't even know you were thinking yeah. about this or, you know, um, this is out of the blue or, <laughs> you know, because, because of that, I don't know if self-censorship is the right word, but that kind of like 
that tentativeness with which we learn how to validate our own feelings and even be able to like recognize that, oh no, that person was racist. It's not that they're like genuinely curious to know where I come from when they stop me in the street. Like, you know, or like, <laughs> yeah, because, because I feel like I also, I guess, grew up with liberal kind of humanist parents, you know, so kind of like, it doesn't matter where you come yeah. from. Um, and, and I really internalized that. And I think that then weirdly resulted in being unable to see that, no, actually people do treat you differently. And I'm not just misinterpreting the social interaction. It is a real mm-hmm. thing that I'm feeling and I have a right to say that I'm upset about it. Like really, even like as simple as that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I kind of had this internalized like colorblindness, this like, so I must be crazy, you know? You're not crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Tell you that much. If you are, then I am, so. (laughs) Yeah, we noted down a final question about um, how, how do we or how did we learn to love and, and accept ourselves and really celebrate as, as people of color and really celebrate our Asianness? Hmm. Um, because for me, I think that is a big part of, of that inside job of, of anti-racism and um, peeling back the layers of internalized racism. Yeah, it's a tough, this is a very tough question. Uh, I will never say that I'm done with something like this. Like I'm not, I I will never, because I don't think that like I have accepted or like completed the process of learning to love myself or accept myself or celebrate my Asian-ness. Like I think it's something that I'm always going to work on. But, uh, you know, I've gotten... It's grown from my college days up until, and it got, and it really got a big boost um, when I went to Korea for one of the uh, ICA gatherings. I think it was 2007. Um, it was my first time really with a big group of adoptees, and it was I went to Seoul. <laughs> like it was, I was like I didn't like dip my toes in. I like jumped into like the hundred foot <laughs> end of the pool. Even if I didn't go with the express like purpose of like learning to love being Korean or celebrate my Asian-ness, sort of that it really was a big kick in that direction. And then I think just, you know, living in New York, New York City and realizing that like, even though there were some, I think, prejudices or ideas that people had about Asians and, you know, in dating and things like that, that there was a large group of people that loved being Asian. Right mm-hmm. uh, in the city and, and and forming friendships with people like that, you know, and and I think in the last few years, more than few years, but like maybe five, you know, five years, six years, you know, since I've met my wife, and she's Korean American, and she's she's basically fluent in Korean, and she's you know she's has a lot of Korean culture in her. Um, that that's helped me as well, sort of you know become much more comfortable with it, and then starting the magazine and having you know, really close friendships with Asian Americans and Asian, uh, Asian Canadians and just talking about it and sort of living it and thinking about it more has helped me uh, uh, to grow in that area. But it's something I'm always going to, I think, uh, work on. 
because just because of the adopted side. And like, you know, I have white relatives and I, I, I know a lot of, you know, sort of, I was raised, we were raised in that culture. So, um, it's always going to grow, but, uh, I think I, I've come to a certain, a certain level of at least acknowledging and accepting I am an Asian. And I think that's a big step in and of itself. Mm. I actually feel really kind of emotional and oh. happy, like <laughs> um, just from oh, listening to that response, which I think was an, a very complete kind of answer to a, a big and difficult question. Oh, <laughs> uh, so thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Do you want to add something, Ryan, or do you? Yeah, really resonate with what you said about the kind of, that's a process of learning um, that you do with other people, right? The people that you surround yourself with and and your projects and and stuff like that. And for me, that's also been a a really nice thing. Like, for instance, this podcast with Hannah, it's like something we we do together. I feel like I learned so much just through this process. And also there's these like kind of associated effects of just like, that increased acceptance yeah. and that increased celebration just through doing this work with someone else. Um, Hannah, you don't need to reciprocate. You might not feel that way. That's, 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 that's cool. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, I hate this guy. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I love doing this podcast and it's also, I think it is so empowering to speak about your experiences, like to really find your voice and use it. Um, and, yeah. and that's all part of like, I think in order to do that, you do need to, um, be comfortable to some extent with, with who you are and like own your identity somewhat in order to, to be able to put your voice out there. And, um, yeah. So we wanted to end this episode with, a little random question segment for you. Sure. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> um, okay. So five questions. Okay. So number one, okay. so we're kind of into astrology. So what's your star sign? <laughs> I'm a Sagittarius. Oh, I can see that. Do you or, identify I, I, with that? I'm Chinese. I'm a rooster. Oh. So. Okay. Um, two, uh, uh, if you had to choose one type of cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? Um, Korean. Oh, wow. So like no hesitations, like Korean. Yeah. Okay. The only hesitate, well, the way, reason why I don't hesitate is that um, I can still eat beef and meat and stuff. So like, you know, there's no, there's no reason not to pick, pick Korean. <laughs> Korean has like everything. Come on. <laughs> um, are you a cat person or a dog person or kind of both? Um, I grew up with cats, so I like cats. I would say I'm much more, I'm, I'm more a cat person, but I do like dogs. <laughs> um, when you visit Korea, what do you like to do in the first 24 hours? Ryan's like judging over there. Um, <laughs> what do I like to do in the first 24 hours when I um, visit Korea? Eat a good meal and, and drink. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, um, what are you watching and really digging on Netflix right now, if anything? Oh, um, hmm. So the last series I watched, and this is going to be a little embarrassing, was Warrior Nuns. 
You guys know that one? <laughs> no, <laughs> but what? It sounds enthralling. Is that reality TV so, or what? No, 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 no. It's 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 a scripted like sort of science fictiony show, and I know it sounds it, the title is really weird. Warrior nuns, what? Um, but it's literally about nuns who are warriors, and they fight like um, like demons and things like that. But it's not like pornographic in any way. It's not like titillating because <laughs> you can like that's sort of it's sort of like a pornish sort of thing. It's not like that. Um, but there's this really so uh, it's not a perfect series, but it's like fun. Like the, they built like the universe in a sort of fun way. So it's not like demons in the um, it's not like heaven and hell. Though it sort of has that uh, setup because they they are nuns, <laughs> but um, it's like beings from another dimension. It's like you know, it's like interdimensional and things like that. Uh, and uh, so it's like it's sort of twisting the fact that like heaven and hell are not really like in the biblical sense, even though they think it is. They just don't understand it. It's like different dimensions. Uh, and there's just this kick-ass nun who's um, Asian American, who's Asian. I think she's like Asian English and, and um, I won't spoil it, but she's just fucking kick ass. And, she, <laughs> and I wish it was just like her and a couple of other characters. Cause there's like a black, black woman who's just like amazing. And like the main woman character, she's sort of like, you know, like a Mary Sue ish sort of like wet blanket, but everyone else is cool. <laughs> so that's what I, I binged that in like a night. I was like, this is sort of dumb, but I got to watch this. Um, so. Wow. Cool. So it has kind of like this philosophical element, maybe, because it's like... Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, even though that like, you know, there are these nuns that like fight demons. <laughs> <laughs> and like superpowers, you know, they have like, like the, the main character, she has powers because she has like the an angel's halo implanted in her body and that like makes she can heal really fast and she's like stronger and like she can actually phase through matter and stuff like that. So she has like superpowers, but no one else in the series really has superpowers. They're just like super trained, right? They're like super <laughs> competent people. They're just, <laughs> so the others are like physically yeah. fighting. Yeah. Yeah. So they're they're Yeah. And, and I, and, and, or they have like guns and things and like swords and like, Oh wow. Mother, but they're martial artists. Right. Oh, and like okay. the, the, the Asian, the Asian woman, she's just, she kicks all sorts of ass. Uh, there's like just an amazing fight scene where like she she pulls down this like veil that's like but it's chainmail, and then she takes out like the sword and like she knows like all sorts of like martial arts and then like there are these like just like five or six big dudes and they're like who is this and then she just kicks their ass. Uh, it's awesome. <laughs> I love that. It's a, a chain mail veil. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's like, and I'm like, how do you see out of this thing? It doesn't matter. You're a warrior nun. You're gonna kick butt. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, it it's 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 cheesy and trashy, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna check that out for sure. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks so much again, Adam. Um, <laughs> um, you guys, you guys are great. I was very excited when you guys started, and uh, you know, you guys are younger adoptees. Uh, even if maybe you don't feel young, but I think you know you're you're part of the younger generation, and uh, uh, and I'm always excited to, for that. I'm not old, but I'm I'm an older adoptee, and 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 we're gonna. Uh, I've started thinking more about. You know, how are we going to continue the community and sort of building this going forward? 
not just for the Korean American or Korean Australian adoptees, but for like all the other Asian adoptees out there from like China and Vietnam and the Philippines and, and other areas uh, and other countries, because, you know, I think the Chinese adoptee community is going to be the next really large one. And, and they're sort of coming of age or have come of age. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, I think it's part of the responsibility for, uh, you know, myself and some of the, even the older Korean adoptees that I know who are in their fifties and sixties to be able to sort of pass on the knowledge and be like, you know, we learned this, this works. We tried this. It didn't work. You know, maybe we didn't try this. You can try it or something like that and sort of just try to continue it going. I think that's important. I think it's very important, not just for us to build communities so we can all sort of have one, but, you know, we talked a lot about justice. And I think one of those areas of justice is sort of adoptee justice and adoption justice. And the fact that like the systems out there just don't, you know, are not working right now um, and are harming a lot of people. So uh, I I was very happy. I was like, this is, and you guys are so, I I think you're both so intelligent and thoughtful. uh, And um, I was, was, and I was very surprised and happy that you guys asked me to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. (laughs) And thank you so much for your time. Um, Of course. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast, or we're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening.